So we're continuing on in the Gospel of John. We're getting down to the end, last chapter and a half. We're getting close. question today is, what do you believe? What, what does it take to make you believe? What do you need to have presented to you before you are ready to believe something? We run across this all the time. Maybe it's politics and you're trying to make sense out of all the stuff that's being thrown around. So maybe you just go to your own trusted news outlet and whatever they say, you believe it because you trust them. Whether you're a CNN person or a Fox News person or a Facebook news person, maybe you're a Disney Channel news person. What do you choose to believe and who do you trust? How, how do you feel about proof? Is proof important? Do you need evidence? And what, what kind of proof is it that you require? Maybe you're one of those people, you're kind of a, I just trust my gut. I just know. I know. I know. Don't give me other information. I'm just going to trust my gut. Today I want to talk about one of my favorite people in the Bible. I say that a lot because i got a lot of favorite people in the Bible. But one of my favorites is Thomas. You probably know him as Doubting Thomas. We're going to talk about doubt, and we're going to talk about belief. I'm going to ask you over and over and over in the course of this message, what do you believe and why? What is truth to you? What do you believe? What are you doing about it? Last week we looked at when Jesus had appeared to uh, almost all of His disciples on the the night of the resurrection. Uh, They were all gathered in the upper room, and it says the door was locked because they were afraid of the authorities. And Jesus appeared in the room and He said, My peace be with you. He knew what they needed was peace. Message hasn't changed. You're sitting there today and you're just like me. You need peace. So here we are, John 20, 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Here's a curious thing. The twin is a very specific addition to introducing Thomas. Thomas the twin. He's referred to that more than once in the New Testament. The thing is, we have no idea whose twin he was. doesn't tell us. Bible doesn't tell us at all. We just know he was a twin. There's no more information that Scripture gives us other than that Thomas was a twin. The other thing is, we know that when Jesus made his first appearance, Thomas wasn't there. We don't know why Thomas wasn't there. We don't know what he was doing. We just know that he wasn't. He wasn't with the rest of the disciples that first night. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord in in the original Greek The way that that word comes across is that they told him we've seen the Lord over and over and over again. They kept telling him that we've seen the Lord. They kept telling him because he kept not believing them. They kept saying, Thomas, but we saw him. If you just would have been there, man, it was so incredible. The, The doors were locked and he just showed up. And we all got to see him. And Thomas wasn't there. And it says that over and over and over. They kept telling him, and Thomas basically said, I don't believe you, show me the proof. He didn't trust their testimony. He didn't trust their witness that the risen Jesus had really appeared. I wonder how often we do the same thing. I got to thinking about it this week. You know, we we say that we believe Jesus can heal people. Say believe that God still does. But have you ever met someone who says that I was healed? Someone prayed for me. Someone spoke a word over me. I was healed. Jesus healed me right in that moment. And I think for most of us, the thing that we think is, well, that's really cool. I'm glad they believe that. 
I'm happy to hear they're feeling better. We don't necessarily believe that they were really healed. We have doubt. What about if somebody says, you know what? Jesus became real to me. I gave my life to Him and I'm not the same as I used to be. Two weeks ago, that person is gone. Two months ago, two years ago, that person is gone. I'm just not the same me. Well, we say that we believe that Jesus transforms human lives. That none of us are beyond that. That that all of us are redeemable and Jesus loves us and to all of us who would call on His name. But when someone says it, do we believe it? Or do we keep treating them like the old person that we've always known? And the thing that strikes me is... I don't think it's that we doubt that Jesus can. I think it's that we doubt the witness. We question the person and what's really going on. And I almost wonder if that's not because of us seeing and hearing these late night TV people that talk about healings and you watch them and it's just there's nothing in you that says, I believe it. And we go, well, they're, they're, they're doing that in Jesus' name. How, how much of the rest of it can be real? And we're trained to doubt. But what happens when Jesus really gets a hold of someone? Do you believe it? How much proof do you need that Jesus can really change a life? So they say we've seen the Lord, but Thomas said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, because that's where the uh, spear went, he says I'll never believe. Now, Thomas was the disciple back in John 14, which recorded John 14, 5. Jesus told the disciples that where he was going, he said, well, I'm going to heaven. Thomas was the one who said back in 14, 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? After three years, Thomas didn't get it. Thomas needed facts. He needed supporting evidence. Thomas was a show-me, prove-it, prove-it visual guy, visual guy. And he wasn't about to take the testimony evidence of the other disciples at their word. He said, show me. I need to know for myself. There's no way I'm going to trust you at your word. Why? Because I think there was an awful lot going on in Thomas's head. Thomas had missed the resurrection. It's eight days after Jesus had first appeared to that group of disciples. That first night, Thomas missed the party. He had been there with him for three years. I have no idea where he was. The Bible doesn't tell us. But eight days later, he is gathering with again, and he's the doubter. He isn't going to believe that what they've been telling him is true unless he knows it in his own terms. He isn't willing to let the other disciples change his mind. Their testimony isn't enough for him. He says, unless I see, unless I have proof that I'm willing to accept, nothing's going to be good enough. And all he's really asking for is the same evidence the other disciples had, which makes me think that all this time they've been telling Thomas, we got to touch him. We know it's true because we got to, he showed us. And so Thomas just says, unless I get to do the same thing, I'm not going to believe you. So verse 26, eight days later, Bible's clear, John wants us to know, eight days have passed. His disciples, Jesus' disciples, were inside again, and Thomas was with them. This time he made it to the party. Although the doors were locked again, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They're back in that upper room. The door is locked. They're trying to keep everybody out. I don't know how Jesus did it, but he appeared in the middle of them. And he says the same thing, Peace be with you. Why? Because what is the thing that you and I need more than anything? Peace. 
You might think it's a little bit more money. You might think it's happiness. You might think it's all kinds of stuff. Tell you what, if you really stop and sit down and get quiet for a while, the one thing that your heart and soul and mind don't have is peace. Drives so much of what happens in our country. And Jesus shows up and said, Peace be with you. There's that phrase. Thomas, who's living without peace. The one who needs the peace that can only come from Jesus. The testimony of the other disciples wasn't enough. Eight days later, and if we follow the chronology of events, it would appear that Jesus rose from the grave on what we now call Sunday. Mary Magdalene went running back to the disciples and she said, I've seen the Lord. That night they're all gathering. Sunday night they're all gathering up in the, in the upper room. The door is locked for the fear of the Jews. Jesus appears among them and says, peace be with you. Then the second Sunday, eight days later, Jesus appears again. The Bible doesn't tell us what Jesus did in those days that were between the two Sundays. It doesn't tell us a bit. We don't know where he was. We don't know what he did. We don't know, we don't know much of anything. Eight days later, he appeared. Now, there's been a lot of discussion, and, and some of it is uh, very heated amongst good Christian people about the proper day to worship. For the Jewish people, they believe that to honor the Sabbath day and to keep it holy, the only day that that can be is Saturday. To most Christians, we've made Sunday the Sabbath day. And what we end up doing is getting in discussions and arguments and all kinds of conversations. Most of those aren't very helpful, but it would appear that to the risen Savior, to Jesus, Sundays were very significant days because that's the first two days that He chose to appear to His followers. See, really good people go back and forth and they argue about what's the right day. Discussions in trying to be faithful end up becoming arguments. And God isn't glorified in our fighting or our arrogance or our stubborn insistence that we're right. What the Bible says is honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy because God is holy. So take a phrase from Nike, just do it. That might be Sunday for you. It might be Saturday, it might be Wednesday. All God asks is one day that you set aside and recognize that because God is holy, you will set one day aside to spend with God. Why? Because God is holy. Just do it. You can do that. Verse 27. Jesus, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He says, go ahead, Thomas, put your hand in the hole in my side that the spear went. And the important part wasn't the proof. The important part was what Jesus wanted to come from it. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus' desire for Thomas is exactly the same as His desire for you and I. Jesus wants you not to disbelieve, but to believe. Not to doubt, but to believe. There's nothing about Jesus that we have to doubt. And that's what he's standing before Thomas saying. See, Jesus knows that Thomas is about to do something that you and I are really, really good at. Thomas is about to doubt himself right out of heaven. It doesn't matter how much I see. It doesn't matter how much I hear. Unless I get to see for myself Jesus, I don't believe. 
Jesus doesn't want us to doubt. He wants us to believe. So my question for you then, is your doubt greater than your faith? Is what you don't know and don't believe greater than what you do know and do believe? And if you're having a question and you're not sure what you believe, is it because you don't trust Jesus? Or is it because you doubt the testimony of the people who tell you about Him? History is dubbed Thomas Doubting Thomas, which, with all due respect, I think is a really bum rap. Thomas isn't doubting Thomas. All Thomas asked for was the very same evidence Jesus had given the other disciples a week earlier. Let me see his hands. Let me see his side. He wanted the same proof. That's not unreasonable. For a long time, I've read these passages about Thomas, and I don't think Thomas was doubting. I can identify with Thomas because I think Thomas was desperate. I think Thomas was absolutely desperate. He was desperate to believe, desperate to hope. He was desperate for healing for his broken heart. He, He was desperate to know that this Jesus that he had spent three years with, that he had walked away from everything else to spend days, morning, noon, and night with this man, he wanted desperately to believe that Jesus was alive. He had seen the torture. He had seen and heard about the trials. He had seen Jesus hanging on the cross. At some point, He disappeared. He knew that He died. He knew that He was buried. And now He's hearing that He's alive again. And somehow I can relate to the desperation that Thomas must have felt. I want to believe that He told me the truth. I just want to believe that what He said was real. So Jesus appears and He says, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Verse 28, Thomas answered Him, My Lord and my God. What a confession of Thomas's heart and faith. The doubt disappeared. The disbelieving went away. I actually can imagine this scene if I was going to do the movie. Thomas wouldn't just say, my Lord and my God. Thomas would fall to his knees. And I think Thomas would not know whether to look at Jesus or to look at his feet and say, my Lord and my God. In that moment, Thomas knew personally and deeply and intimately the peace that Jesus keeps talking about. All of the fear, all of his guilt about about abandoning Jesus, all the guilt about being gone for a week from the rest of the disciples, all of his doubt and pride and stubbornness disappeared in a heartbeat as he immediately confesses Jesus not just to be his Savior, because that's the easy part. Thomas doesn't use that word. When we say Jesus is our Savior, that means our sins are forgiven. That means that we can feel good about the rest of our lives and our eternity. That's easy. That's all about us. That wasn't Thomas's response. My Lord and my God. The King of His heart, the Lord of His life, the God of all creation. Everything Jesus had ever said, everything Jesus had ever claimed and promised, Thomas knew now it was true. He knew for himself. He was there. He got to hear Jesus. He got to see Jesus. In that instant, he stopped being rebellious. 
He stopped being obstinate. He stopped insisting that he was right. And he acknowledged with his confession that he had been wrong. And those other disciples that he had been away from for over a week, for whatever his reasons were, were no longer people who were lying. They were proclaimers along with him that his Jesus was alive. The greatest news in all of human history. Jesus is our Lord. He is our God, Messiah, and Savior of our souls, and He is alive. And Thomas now knew that they had been telling him the truth. Thomas was transformed in that instance forever. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot of where Thomas went after this, but other books and other writers give us ideas. And there's some, there's some history and tradition that may or may not be accurate, but what we can gather is that Thomas was the only one of those original disciples to make it outside the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was growing rapidly. He made it out, made it out to, to Persia. Bible, uh, other people say that he made it all the way to India. There are even some that claim Thomas made it all the way into China. There's still a church in India where they say that he's buried. Thomas, interestingly enough, met the end of his life with a spear to the side. That one thing that he needed as proof was the one thing that ended his time on this earth. Thomas was completely committed to Jesus. So what about you? I told you I was going to ask. What do you believe? Who is Jesus to you? How much evidence do you need? What do you need as proof? Who do you need to hear from? What do you need to see? Who is Jesus to you? That becomes the question. And for you, sitting wherever you are, it's the only question that matters. I can't answer for you. Your parent can't. Your spouse can't. You have to decide. Who is Jesus to you? Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Makes us think he's doubting Thomas again. But you know what? I want to talk about that for a minute. Back in John 11, when Mary and Martha sent for Jesus because Lazarus was sick, the disciples were worried because that was going to take Jesus dangerously close to Jerusalem. And they knew that the church leaders were already calling for Jesus' death. And they were worried for Jesus' safety. And in all fairness, they were worried for their own. If you're going to kill the leader, you might as well kill out the, kill the ones who are with them. And the disciples didn't want to go back. They didn't want to go even though they were being begged by Mary and Martha. In John 11, verse 16, So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples about going back to Jerusalem, Let us also go that we may die with him. Does that sound like the statement of a doubting wimp? Does that sound like the kind of thing a guy that wasn't really all in would say? Nope, that's a man who was sold out and committed and all in for the cause of this Jesus of Nazareth. And as we continue to read, we realize Jesus is talking about His death and resurrection. He's talking about the days that were going to be ahead for Him, that He wasn't going to be able to avoid them. And I believe that Thomas remembered every one of those words that Jesus spoke. I think he remembered absolutely everything that Jesus said. And as we read these words that happened eight days after the resurrection, I believe Thomas was desperate to know that what Jesus had said was true. That Jesus truly was alive and it truly was His Jesus. 
Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You know, he's talking about you and I, right? He's talking about everybody that would follow throughout all of history who wouldn't have lived their day-to-day life with Jesus, recognized him on the spot and asked to put your finger in the hole in his hand or your hand in the hole in his side. We have testimony. We have witnesses. We have the truth that passes down to us. But what Jesus is saying is, blessed are all those people who don't have the opportunity to have the proof that you have, Thomas. Blessed are all those people who believe even though they haven't seen. If you have put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus as your Lord and your God and accepted Him as your Savior, that's you He's talking about. You believe even though you haven't seen. But we've seen, we've got God's Word. If you believe, it's because you trust it. Jesus is talking about all of us who would willingly submit our lives to Him even though we don't see Him personally the way Thomas did. Thomas knew the witnesses and he encountered Jesus. All the rest of us hear their testimony. We read God's Word. And we've got to make a decision to believe or not based on whether or not we take that testimony to be true. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you will believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Part of what I love about Thomas, Thomas was willing to question his doubt. He was willing to doubt his doubts. Thomas was willing to take everything that he thought he knew and he was willing to say, I'm willing to be shown that I was wrong. If you can give me proof that I'm wrong, I want to believe. He wanted to see the proof. Thomas had disappeared along with the rest of the disciples, probably in part because Thomas expected, like most of the Jewish people did, a king to come back and restore Israel the way they wanted, the way they understood, with an army that would knock down Rome and make Israel free. But that's not what Jesus did. That's not what He came for. And when Jesus died on the cross... I have to believe that Thomas and those other disciples, their hopes and dreams and all the things that they had been looking forward to died along with them. Thomas scattered like all the rest of them did. Who, Who could this Jesus have possibly have been? But what we see is that Thomas wants to believe. He's dealing with word of Jesus' resurrection. He's dealing with the promise that Jesus made of His resurrection. He's also dealing with his own shame. He's dealing with the fact that he abandoned Jesus. He's the one that walked away. And the fact that a week earlier, everyone else had gathered, the old gang got together in the upper room, their safe place, and he wasn't there. He missed Jesus' first appearance. He was doing something else, somewhere else, with someone else, when he should have been with his friends so that he could have met Jesus. He's dealing with all of that. And Jesus knew it, and He said, Thomas, it's really me. And John goes on in verse 30, and He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. That's the beginning of John's wrap-up. I think that's kind of funny, because what I read is John saying, Oh yeah, Jesus did a lot of really cool other stuff, but there's just not room here to record it all. You'll have to figure it out all later. So the other Gospels, they record some of it. Maybe other people through history have written a little bit more. What we need to know is in God's Word. But the cool thing is that John leaves us with that, saying there's a lot more that you don't know about. And one day, 
The only way we're going to find out is when we get to heaven and we get to, to hear the story for ourselves. Us believing is incredibly important to John. Verse 31. But these, the ones that he's recorded, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in Him. Pastor Jeff said it earlier during the introduction to communion. Do do you know why John recorded all of this? For you. He was there. He knew it. He knew it was true. He didn't need to be convinced. He got to talk to the other disciples and they got to, to hear the different versions of what they had seen and their different understandings. But John knew it was true. He wrote all this down for you so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He truly is the Son of God, that the Jesus that we wouldn't get to see and touch for ourselves. John said, I'm going to record all of this so that you know that it's true. Every single word of it you can trust. So that when we believe in Jesus as the Son of God, our Savior, we too might have life in His name. That is why John wrote it all down. So that you might believe. When that happens, then we know the peace that only comes from Him. There's no other way in this world to get that peace. You can't buy it. There's nothing you can add to your life that's going to help you a bit. More money doesn't do it. More stuff doesn't do it. Jesus alone does it. That's it. That's all. When you drop to your knees and you give up your pride and your stubbornness and you end your rebellion that we call sin against God and you proclaim Jesus as your Lord and your God, you too will be transformed. You too will know that peace. Because that stubborn, prideful, and you know this person well, the stubborn, prideful, selfish, rebellious you and the rebellious me dies and the new you, the Jesus in you, is recreated in its, new, in its place. That's new life. That's the new creation. That's the new person that Jesus promises we become. And that is peace. That's the peace that exists only in the transformation of recognizing Jesus as your Lord and your God. Do you know that peace? Does it matter what happens in a given day or a given week? Does that peace stay with you and nothing can shake it? Or do you have it one minute and lose it the next? All I can do is look at my life and how I see things, and here's what I think it is. I think there's days that I absolutely am grateful to Jesus as my Savior, and He is the Lord of my life in all ways. And then there's days where I am grateful that Jesus is my Savior and I'm Lord of my life. Guess which are the good days? I think the reason that we don't have peace is we say, Jesus, thank you for being our Savior, but I'll continue to be in control. Thank you. There's no peace in that. I believe Thomas fell to his knees because Thomas knew that his fight was over. Jesus, as his Lord and his God, was the one he was going to spend every moment of every day for the rest of his life living for. And in that came peace that passes all understanding that can only come from Jesus. Do you know that peace? If you don't, we've got folks that will be in all four corners as soon as I'm done that would love to pray with you. God does not want you to go through life fighting on your own without that peace. They can't give you that peace. But they can introduce you to Jesus who can. Maybe you had it and you've lost it. 
Maybe you had a good run with Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, and you're on a run right now where you're, you've been Lord long enough. Started out saying, thank you for today, God. We don't know what tomorrow brings. But you can know where you're going to be tomorrow no matter what happens if you have that peace. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage of Thomas. He's gotten (laughs) treated maybe not so fairly through history as doubting Thomas. But I think Thomas is like most of us. He's desperate, Thomas. He's going to give his life to you. He wants to know that it's real, that you're real. That he's not chasing down something that he's going to regret. Thomas found out just how real you are. God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would move us to be able to accept the testimony that we hear from others, the testimony that we read in your word, and to accept the Bible as your word to us. That we would stop our stubbornness and stop our rebelliousness and stop being obstinate. And that we would also declare you our Lord and our God and say thank you for being our Savior. God, thank you for what you did in Jesus that we cannot do for ourselves, that we can read something like this and not be filled with hopelessness. But we can know that your point and purpose is that we would have hope in your Son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray and we give you thanks. Amen.